Friends, we come this morning to our sermon passage, and last week we started a new sermon series in the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to be looking at this fall, what it means to live free. And instead of beginning last week, which I encourage you, if you missed the sermon last week, to go back and listen. It's on the podcast on uh, the different platforms. But instead of beginning with the first commandment, we began where God begins when he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. We begin with who God is and what he's done. Because when God begins to give the commandments, he doesn't just start listing off a, thing, a list of things to do. He starts by telling the people who he is and what he's accomplished. And what we talked about last week is the absolute key to understanding not just the role of the Ten Commandments, but really one of the keys of understanding the entirety of Scripture is understanding that God does not give us commandments as a thing to be followed that we will then earn his love. When Moses showed up in Egypt and the Israelites were enslaved, Moses did not lead off with a list of commandments. And then the people followed it, and then God set them free. No, Moses came in, and God set the Israelites free from their slavery. He redeemed them and freed them, and only after he had done that, he gave them his instructions. Not as a way to earn anything, but as a way, as a guide for them to live as God's freed people. The principle here is grace goes first. That is, resounds throughout Scripture. Grace goes first. Always. Always. Now in Exodus, God frees the Israelites, then gives him his, the, uh, the instructions on how to live as God's freed people. And he does the same thing for us. He frees us from our slavery to sin. And then he teaches us what it means to live as God's freed people. We aren't earning that freedom. It's given to us as a gift. And then he instructs us on what it means to live free in this world. And I'm hitting this hard because it is really, really crucial for us to get this because we have this tendency for whatever reason that when we look at a commandment that God's given, whether it's Ten Commandments or something that Jesus said, that we see it and we treat it as something we're like, now I've got to do this. Now I've got to do this if God's going to love me. Or he'll, he'll love me extra more if I do this thing. That's never the principle that's at work ever, ever, ever. Grace goes first always. And that relationship already exists. It doesn't need to be created by us. We don't need to earn our freedom. And so our relationship with God's commandments, with his law, is never treating it as something to justify ourselves. Our good works cannot justify us. Only God can do that. And by faith in Jesus, he does exactly it can show us what is good and bad. It can guide us in living free, but it cannot justify us. So as we look at each of the Ten Commandments, starting this week, we're going to look at number one and in the next ten weeks, each of them individually. We are going to use the same kind of structure and lens, the sermon structure. I usually break the sermons up into sections. For the next ten weeks, we're going to use the exact same three sections because I think it's a helpful rubric to keep in mind as we're encountering the commandments. The first section is going to be every week, who are we in the gospel? What has God declared us to be? Because this is crucial, as I've said. The second section is going to be, how are we to live as God's freed people? 
how does this treat, uh, I mean, how does this teach us as God's freed people on how to live? And the third one is, how does this freedom lead us into mission? Because God's grace finding us is always a grace that finds us and then equips us and sends us out to turn us toward others in love. So that's a lot of introduction to get to our sermon passage this morning, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That in it you show us who you are and what you've done. And thus you show us who we are in you and the riches that belong to us in Christ. So I pray in these moments, as we attend to... The, the, the riches and the treasure of your word, that you would open the eyes of our heart to show us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would love him all the more, the more, that you would change us and transform us to be like him. Teach us what it means to live as your freed people, Lord. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the, who are we in the gospel? That's the first section here. Who are we in the gospel? And this passage says it very clearly. We are the Lord's. We belong in an important way to him, that when we consider who we are, we can't begin to define who we are apart from the reality that we belong to God. We belong to the one true God. And I don't mean this just in a general way. Like we could say everybody belongs to God because he's the creator of everybody. Because when God says it here to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God, he is talking about a very specific kind of belonging. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is a very specific kind of belonging. The Israelites belonged to God because he had moved into human history by his grace to free them from slavery, to bring them into his kingdom. He is the Lord their God. Now this morning, we aren't Israelites living 3,500 years ago on the other side of the world that have been freed from physical slavery. But we are those who, in a greater sense, have been freed from the domineering power of sin. We've been forgiven and are being set free from the power of sin as a slave master. We have been bought and we belong to God. Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. He's telling the people, your bodies matter and you are to live your lives glorifying God in your body that matters because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And that price is what all of the Old Testament, including Exodus, pointed to all along. The sacrifice of Jesus at his cross, where he took the penalty that sin deserves, and he wore, in a sense, our sins in his body, so that we don't have to bear the penalty and judgment of sin. He paid for us. He, in a sense, bought us. Now, when we're told that, I, I don't know, I, I cringe a little bit at the thought of being bought. Like, you know, I cringe at that a little bit. But when we're told this, it is not supposed to make us feel kind of shame that we're things, that we're things that can be bought. No, when we are told that we belong to God, that we were bought at a price, we are being told that we have value beyond value. We have value beyond our counting. Here's what I mean. I heard a conversation recently between a couple of friends, and one was thinking about trying to buy a house. 
And if you know anything about house prices over the last few years, they've skyrocketed. Absolutely. It's unbelievable prices for houses compared to 10 years ago right now. And the friend who was thinking about buying a house, he was hesitant. And he said, well, I kind of... I kind of don't want to buy because I feel like I'm going to overpay for whatever I get. That I'm not, I'm going to pay too much for this house. And the other friend said, well, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But a house is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. It may not seem like it's worth it. But if someone is willing to pay that amount, that's how much that house is worth. There's a truth in that for us. To belong to God, to the one true God, to be the Lord's is to be people who have been granted value beyond counting. Christ has conferred a value on us that has nothing to do with us hustling to make it happen or to earn a value. We and our value, our worth is determined by the price that has been paid for us. And that value is entirely determined by God. Now, I've shared this story before. I have a buddy who a few years ago, he was in Clinton, just down the road, and he, he saw a guitar at a yard sale. And he, so he pulled over into the yard, and it was a beat-up, not super beat-up, but it didn't have any markings, like it didn't have Fender or uh, Gibson on the headstock. looked like a Fender Telecaster, but it didn't have any writing on it, to like a serial number or whatever. And it obviously was pretty old. And so he asked how much they wanted for it. They wanted $5. $5 for this guitar. So he was like, I, I can part with five bucks, you know, for a guitar. So he got that. And I'm going to skip the long, long story. But that same guitar that he paid $5 for at a yard sale turned out to be incredibly rare and valuable and sold recently at auction for $90,000. A $5 guitar at a yard sale in Sampson County turned into a $90,000 guitar when someone who knew what they were looking at looked at it. When that collector looked at that guitar and knew what it was, he was willing to part with more money than I've ever thought about. What does this have to do with the first commandment? It speaks about not having any other gods than God. No God beside God. Well, I think it has to do with this. A God is anything we look to for value or meaning. A God doesn't have to be, you know, something you're thinking this is a deity that exists somewhere. A God is anything we look to to define us and give us value. Something that absorbs our hearts and our imaginations. Something that we chase after to comfort us to define us and give us our identity. And what God is telling us in the first commandment, that it is only in relationship with him that we will receive the value, love, and worth that we long to have. And when he tells us that we are not our own, but we belong in body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, he is telling us, this is the price that I was willing to pay to win you. And I confer this incredible value on you that you had nothing to do trying to make happen. And you are valuable and you are worthy because I have said you are valuable and you are worthy. 
And you can stop trying to calculate in yourself your value and worth. You can stop trying to count up the good deeds or count up the bad deeds. You can stop trying to do anything to earn value or worth or status because it is given to you by Him. Something is worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. And when we chase after other gods, when we begin to look at other things and listen to other voices to confer meaning and worth and value on us, we are running after things that cannot give what they promise. I mentioned it a second ago, but when Scripture speaks about idolatry, it is not just talking about people who make little like statues of gods or carvings that they bow down and worship to in a shrine. It's talking about our heart issues. It's talking about when we go to something else and bow down or maybe even sacrifice to something else to give us meaning and significance. And to be God's people, to belong to God, is to realize that we have been won by the one who can define our value, who can deliver on what he promises. And that we can give up looking to other false gods and look up and give up looking to any other places to define us and give us worth. That is who we are. We belong to God, and as God's people, He gives us value beyond counting. And that brings us to our second section: how we live as God's freed people. So we've been freed by the God who gives us value, and we don't look anywhere else to find it. But in this world, we are surrounded, absolutely surrounded. Just about anything can be a God to our hearts. We are surrounded by false gods making false promises that they can't deliver on. I mean things like, uh, and, and kids, you're going to hear me say popularity. Popularity contests don't end at high school. Um, but that can be very much being uh, popular or being admired, being somebody... That, that be wanting to be somebody that people think well of. It's not a bad thing to have a, want to have a good reputation. But when we are looking to that for our source of value and worth, other people's opinions of us, when that becomes the driving focus, when that becomes the thing that kind of keeps us up at night or motivates us, that has become a false God that will not deliver on what we think it promises. Because even if you are the most admired person in the world, you're going to want more. You're going to want more admiration. Even good things. Good things like family. Family can become an idol. Where we look to our value and worth on whether or not we're a parent or how good of a parent we are. Or whether or not we have a spouse or a partner in that relationship. But family... Even the best family cannot be where we find our value and worth. It can't. It is a false god, or it can become a false god that will wear us out. It cannot be the thing that we look to to give us value and worth. We could talk about material wealth. You know, thinking that if I got this, this number of zeros in my bank account, like that, that many commas in, in the number in my bank account, if I could get here, that's when I'm going to be valuable. That's when I'm going to be worthy. That's when I can say, yes, I have arrived. I am somebody 
that has earned these things. Having money is not necessarily a bad thing. Money having us is the bad thing. And that's what happens. When we chase after this false god, it will never be enough. I, I love the story of J.D. Rockefeller, who at the time was the richest man in the world. He personally, his personal worth was like equal to 5% of the United States' personal worth, or national worth, like an obscene amount of money. He had a journalist ask him, how much will be enough? And he said a little bit more. He was already the richest man in the world. He had want of nothing. How much will be enough? A little bit more. Pleasure and recreation, those can be idols. Those aren't bad things, but if our entire life is aimed toward getting on the boat at the lake, it's a good thing. I love boats, I love lakes, I love beaches, I love mountains. But if that is our entire focus and our entire goal and everything else exists to serve that, then it has become a God. And what happens when the hurricane comes and blows the beach house away? Or when there's a hole in the boat that you can't fix? Or even things like sports. We are, what, in the second week of college football season? I'm not a football fan, so I can pick on football. I'm a huge basketball fan, so we won't talk about that. Um, but no, I, I'm not going to pick on college football. But we live in ACC country. We know the power of investing your entire identity, in a sense, into a sports team and rising and falling on their victory or their defeat. We know that. Or we play sports and we rise and fall on our performance in the game and we... Uh, give so much power to how well we do or how poorly we do, to the sense that if we do poorly, we despair. If our team does poorly, we absolutely despair. Those can all be counterfeit gods, and I could keep listing, but I won't. And the danger for us, even as followers of Jesus, even as those who have had our eyes open to who he is and who we are in him, is that we will allow these things to take deep root in our hearts, and these will become the places that even though we say we are placing our faith in Jesus and we have this vital living faith in Him, those will be actually the places where we found our value and worth, our reputation in town, our GPA, how well our team is doing, etc., etc., etc. And I'm not saying that being a big sports fan of a team is a bad thing. I'm a huge sports fan. I'm not saying having a well-paying job is breaking the first commandment. It's not. But what I am saying is we have to be aware of what's going on under the hood. We have to be aware of what's going on in our hearts. When something has such a profound power on us, when something becomes that thing that we uh, prioritize over everything else, when that thing becomes the thing that we schedule our entire lives around, why does it have so much power? Being able to stop and ask that question, why does that matter so powerfully to me? What am I looking for in this thing to give me that only God can give me? What value am I trying to find in myself through this avenue? Well, the invitation to us to live as God's free people is to open our eyes to realize that that is what is going on. And to realize that Jesus is breaking the power of the pull of those things on our hearts. That God has freed us to be free. 
And so we can be people that then inhabit all of these worlds. We can play sports and play them well and know our value does not rest on how good or how poorly we do. We can be involved and be good students in school and still chase that 4.0 or however many, whatever it winds up being with all the AP classes, you can get like a 5.1, which is preposterous on the scale. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. We can do that, but know if we get that B, it's not the end of the world. That our value and our worth rests in who Jesus says we are. Value beyond value. Now understanding this dynamic at work in our hearts can be so empowering when we're talking about sin. And here's what I mean. I think a lot of times we only think of sin as us doing something wrong. We are transgressing the law. And that is what sin is. Sin is breaking God's command. It's doing wrong. But if we only think of sin that way, when we do sin, we're just gonna we're almost gonna treat it like we're training a dog, like bad dog, bad boy, don't do that again. And we'll say, okay, don't do that again, don't do that again. But when we understand that sin actually runs deeper than that, that in a sense behind every sin is us chasing value and worth. Behind every sin is us trying and to desperately either numb ourselves or validate ourselves in some way, then we can then have a deeper experience of the gospel. Because then we can come to Jesus not just for forgiveness, which we can sometimes treat like a transaction, right? Like, I did this sin, I'm going to apologize, and almost like I got my Jesus money and I can pay that off, now I'm good, we're squared away. We can think of forgiveness as just a transaction. But when we understand that this kind of thing is at work in our hearts, we can then flee to Jesus for our value and worth, forgiveness and value and worth. And so we don't have to get caught up in a, a game of, of guilt and shame. We can run right away when we, we figure out something's going on in our hearts where we are allowing a voice to have an outsized influence over who we are or a, an idol of our heart. We can flee to Jesus and know that he gives us value and worth because he is valuable. And he is worthy. And so when the lies are loud, when we begin to believe them, when we think I'm alone, I'm worthless, that I can never be truly loved, or any of those things that we have all had going on in our heads before, when our shame spirals at full blast, when we're tempted to run to something else for comfort or distraction, we can turn the gospel up as loud as it will go. We can turn the gospel up to 11. And that is a spinal tap reference. We can turn the gospel up as loud as it will go. Now, I'm a huge fan of the BBC, BBC version of Sherlock. I don't know if you've seen it. It came out a number of years ago. Um, but it stars uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. So if you haven't seen it, Doctor Strange and Bilbo Baggins um, are the actors that are, that are in it. And I won't give away too much of the plot line. I think we all know who Sherlock Holmes is, probably. It's totally worth seeing, though, if you haven't seen it. It's excellent. Um, but there's a powerful moment in one of the episodes where Sherlock Holmes is talking about another character who had sacrificed her life for him. And he says this line, In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I don't know how to spend. In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. And that value is a currency I don't know how to spend. And that leads us, friends, to our last section how this freedom that we've talked about leads us to mission. 
We've been won by God. We belong to him as his treasure and his great prize. We've been bought at this great price. And in saving us, he has conferred a value on us so that we don't need to look to other things to give us what only he can give. And this foundation turns us to others in love. That is how we, quote unquote, spend the currency of our value, being turned to other people. So how does the first commandment, keeping God and God alone as our God, as our source of value and strength, as our true God that we serve, how does this lead us to love others? Now I spoke earlier of false gods being something we turn to to give us what only God can give. And that as we mature in our faith, we more and more are turned to God instead of other things. That we learn to not listen to any other person's voice louder than God's, including our own. Well, the other side of that coin is when we are turned to other people. What I mean is this. In our relationships with each other, if the one true God is the one true God, then we do not turn to people and demand they meet a standard of our own preferences to be accepted. Here's what I mean. Churches do this unintentionally, I think, all the time. Someone starts to come to worship or they come into, get connected to a church in some way through an event. And Christians can indirectly or even directly tell them, you need to worship the one true God. So you need faith in Jesus. And you also need to, in a sense, bow to my preferences. You need to dress the way I want you to dress. You need to have the hair color I want you to have. You need to join the political party that I am active in. You need to do this, that, and the other. And it is essentially saying, beside the reality of who Jesus is and faith in him, I need you to put another God beside that, the God of my preferences, the God of my opinions. That may be sounding like I'm being a little bit drastic there, but I think we could all think through, as products of Southern church culture, scores and scores of examples of this happening in churches. Happened in my own family. It's a story I've told before, but it happened to my dad when he began searching and seeking. He decided he was going to go to church one night after a haze of, uh, you know, Saturday night in the 70s. He walks into a church, no Sunday best on, you know, uh, probably smelling like the night before. Sits down, and a kind man comes and he tells him, You're not welcome here. You're not, not asking a name. You're not welcome here. Why? Because he wasn't dressed the way that man wanted him to be. Because he didn't look like that man wanted him to look. That man was essentially saying, you want Jesus to worship him? You need to come through my preferences. You need to put that God beside the one true God. I'm saying all this because obedience to the first commandment in mission and being turned toward other people means that we allow the truth of the gospel to control how we interact with other people. We allow the truth of the gospel to impact and control our relationships with other people because the gospel is true. That we do not create impossible standards to be welcomed with open arms. That we give the same kind of kindness to others that we've been shown by God. It's what we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive my debts as I forgive my debts. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Not just other people in the community, even people who may owe us something, someone who has wronged us. We, being transformed by grace, become those who turn toward others with the same compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and grace as we've been shown by Jesus. And that means that in the kingdom of God, and in the church, this is the way it's supposed to be, the person that looks like they've made all the right decisions in life is not more valuable or more important than the person who looks like they've made all the wrong decisions in life. We are justified before God by faith in Jesus alone, not by works. Faith in Jesus alone. And that means when we find the grace of Jesus, we aren't justified by our good deeds and we're not condemned by our bad deeds either. And this is what we, as a community of faith, have to offer to people outside our walls. People that are far from God, this is what we have to offer that will make us look like a community that is more than just a, 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 a social club with songs or a social club with, a, with doctrine. Social clubs are good things, by the way, but not in churches. Um, <laughs> that means that we allow the insight I talked about earlier about sin, that it's deeper than just wrong things that are done. It is us longing for value and worth, trying to find it somewhere. That every desire, in a sense, is us trying to find our rest in God, and we are, are, are tilted and turned the wrong ways, so we go the wrong places looking for it. We allow that insight into ourselves to impact our knowledge and relationship with others. What I mean is when others sin in our interaction with them after they have sinned and sinned big, we don't just look at them and say, look at that wicked person. I need to call them out. Look at that dumb person who has done this dumb thing. Now, we may need to call people out, especially if the, the things that they're doing are harming other people, but we can also see at its root the sin of others as them actually seeking value and worth and validation. They are seeking love. And then our interaction with others and their sin is deepened. When we can understand that people at their heart level are being used up and worn out by false gods that cannot deliver what they need, then we can be turned toward them in passion, in compassion. When we have a clear sight of knowing that behind the sins of people is a longing to find value and meaning, we can understand what makes people tick and move past condemnation to compassion. We can become like the Lord Jesus Christ, who when his arms were stretched out and nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If Jesus could say that about the people who were crucifying him right there, then what he's working in us is an ability to do the same thing. To interact with people, even in their folly, even in their sin, in a way that opens the door and tells them that they can find forgiveness and they can find that worth and that value and that love that their hearts crave. They can find the rest that they were created for in their Creator. So friends, that is our calling this morning, to follow our Lord Jesus Christ in this freedom, to know that we are people who have been given value beyond value, so we don't have to chase to find it, we don't have to hustle to get it, it is yours by faith, period. 
I don't give it to you. God gives it to you. To live in this community of faith where we know the temptation is for our brothers and sisters to begin to chase after false idols. That when we comfort each other, we comfort each other with the gospel. We comfort each other with the reality of God's profound love for us. And this turns us toward mission as we become people who interact with others, knowing that God will work through this freedom when we have Him as our one true God to call people to Himself. That said, let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your love for us. I thank You for the power of the Gospel. That we are who You say we are in the Gospel. That we are loved by You as we sang earlier. And that is who we are. And I pray, Lord, that You would teach us the posture of faith that will always look to you to confer value on us, that we don't try to hustle and earn what is already ours, that we would be planted in that. That would be the soil of our growth. And as we live as your freed people, that you would give us insight and knowledge into knowing the things in the pools and the temptations that, that pull our heart and that you would work within us to make us people who live out the reality of who we are in our day-to-day lives. And Lord, that that would lead us and turn us toward others with people of profound and radical love and kindness. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.